0: The Eagle and Child, episode 13. Mere Christianity, book three, chapter two, The Cardinal Virtues.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis. Or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we're looking at the cardinal virtues. As always, I'm joined by the very epitome of prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, my friend Matt. You're too kind, David, but I want to make
0: a prediction here before we get into this chapter. By the end of it, after we go through the definitions of prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, I have a feeling you might retract that statement. We'll see. I appreciate your confidence. <laughs> And before getting into the weekly quote, which I know everyone is very excited for, when we do these podcasts, I keep the mic on a stack of books to make sure it reaches my height. And just to highlight the person David Bates is, I'm going to share with you guys the titles of some of the books that David just has laying around in his room. Because <laughs> you're all wondering how he's so intelligent on this podcast. It's the accent. We've already established this. He, he pretends it's the accent. Wait till you hear what these books are. Hymns and homilies of St.
1: Ephraim. Ephraim, yeah. Yep. Ephraim the Syrian. He's an early church father. Summa of the Summa. This is a summary of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a book by Peter Kraft. because I've really been trying to get into St. Thomas Aquinas this year, which, by the way, has been really helped by Pints with Aquinas. If you're not subscribed to that podcast, you really should be, particularly since the author of that podcast, Matt Frad, just quit his job to do this full time.
0: Oh, he's the guy that wrote, I was just talking about someone with this, the book, The Porn Myth. Yeah. Which is a powerful book. And he's got Mary and the fathers of the Church. Excellent book. King James, Only Controversy.
1: That's a book by the Protestant author, Dr. James White.
0: And How to Do Apologetics. That's
1: by Patrick Madrid. I haven't read that one yet.
0: And now you all see why last week his Dream Girl's Amy Farrah Fowler. <laughs> it all makes sense.
1: It does all make sense.
0: All right. I had to do that little tangent.
1: Okay, will you do the quote, please?
0: So today's quote is going to be from Screwtape Letters. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. So with that in mind...
1: Cheers. Cheers. And we're continuing through the six-pack of Franz's Kirchner. That's the Weissbeer. Mm. So nice. is really good the germans they just do beer so well they do and they also do cars well this is true jack begins today's chapter by explaining that he had to get to his point quickly in the previous chapter because it was a talk given on air but since he's now writing a book he can actually take time to tackle the subject of morality in a different way with a more classical approach and he speaks about seven virtues there are three theological virtues, which Lewis says, as a rule, only Christians know about. These are the virtues of faith, hope, and love.
0: I've never heard of those before.
1: Yeah, <laughs> You're a bad Christian. But we're going to be dealing with faith, hope, and love in later chapters. He says there are also four cardinal virtues. And he says all civilized people recognize these. And they're prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And he begins by explaining the meaning of the word cardinal. It's funny, when I had just finished reading this chapter for our C.S. Lewis reading group here in San Diego, soon after, I attended a talk which actually happened to be on the subject of the virtues, and the speaker asked if anyone knew why these virtues were called cardinal. So Jack came to my rescue. He says that it comes from the Latin word meaning the hinge of the door. They are, as we would say, pivotal.
0: I bet you love that. Because we all, all listeners should know by now, David loves being right.
1: (laughs) I do love being right. It's very true. (laughs) But I love being right even more when I get to quote C.S. Lewis. I was actually rather surprised because although Jack defines cardinal, he never actually says what a virtue is. And I actually only know this from listening to The Catholic Man Show. It's another podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. And they speak about virtue a lot. Actually, their most recent episode at the time of recording was on courage. So I'll link to that. But the word virtue comes from virtus, which means moral strength, high character, goodness, and manliness, because it has the root word via, which is Latin for man. So classically speaking, if you want to be a real man, you need to develop real virtue. So I talked about the roots of where the word virtue comes from, but what actually is it? And to that, I go to St. Thomas Aquinas, because he writes all about virtue. He was a student of Aristotle, not literally, but he imbibed the teachings of Aristotle. And Aristotle also spent a lot of time talking about virtue. Did you learn this in your Summa of the Summa book? Uh, he does talk about it in Summa of the Summa. This is yeah. true. <laughs> See, now you guys know this is where David gets all this from. Yeah, if, I'm, if I sound smart, I'm just stealing from somebody else. Now, Aquinas actually gives several definitions of virtue. But one of the simplest is virtues are good qualities of mind whereby we live righteously or if you want to boil it down a little more it's a kind of habit bad habits we call those vices and good habits we call virtues and the cardinal virtues are good habits on which all the other good habits turn the first one is prudence and jack says prudence means practical common sense
0: taking the trouble to think out what you are doing and what is likely to come of it.
1: I would say that this is the virtue that directs all of the other virtues.
0: Now Jack comments that in today's society, many people hardly even consider prudence
1: to be a virtue. And even some Christians don't think it's a virtue. Lewis focuses on a saying of Jesus, where he says that we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And some Christians use this as a justification for not really thinking that prudence is a virtue. And first, he points out, children are actually quite sensible. If you ever meet a child that's really passionate about something, they will be meticulous about it. He takes a step further than that. Yeah, Christ wants our hearts and our minds. Here's what Lewis says. Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. So what does he want? He says, he wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, teachable, as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and to be in first-class fighting trim. It doesn't say, is it Jesus or Paul that points out we have to be wise
0: as serpents? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Yes. Important distinction.
1: And I I remember the first time that this saying of Jesus really started to make sense to me. What does it mean to become a little child? I was at a hotel and sitting by the pool sunbathing. I don't think amy fairfowler would ever be sunbathing (laughs) i had to throw that this is not going to become a thing (laughs) (laughs) it might (laughs) anyway back to my story there was this little child this little girl and she would jump from the edge of the pool into her father's arms and then swim back to the side and just do it again and again and again and so i was watching this her abandonment to her father she trusted him entirely and I'm sure the first time she jumped, it was very scary, but she's known to trust this person who will always be there to catch her and who will always keep her safe. That's the image that comes to my mind when I hear the words, you must become like a little child. I'm going to say this. Lewis would be proud. <laughs> that, that, that is a really good analogy,
0: especially the part where you said that total abandonment, mm. jumping into the water. And that's what we're called to be with our hearts, with God, that childlike heart or we fully
1: abandon and trust him. But we also have to give him our minds. In the Old Testament, it says, worship God with all your heart, soul, and mind. How do you worship God with your mind? By learning more about him, by engaging the rational faculties that he gave you. You know, we said before, Jesus is the logos. If he is the logic, if he is the reason, then part of becoming fully human, part of being fully absorbed into the divine life, means using our reason and our intellect to their full capacity, which means growing in knowledge and wisdom. And I'm really trying not to get into a little rant here about dumbed-down Catholicism. I'll put a link in the show notes to a talk given by Bishop Barron, because he's spoken on this beautifully. But if you are Christian, if you're Catholic, we have a tradition that embraces both faith and reason, and seeks to grow both of them. Now, there might be a fear here that, well, what if I'm not a super intellectual person? Here's Lewis. It is, of course, quite true that God will not love you any less or have any less use for you if you happen to be born with a second rate brain. Kind of harsh, but still. I was going to say, the second
0: you read that, he would not function well in
1: today's politically (laughs) correct society. I I don't think we would express it quite that way. But I know people who say, oh, I'm not an intellectual. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. And Lewis says, God isn't going to love you any less, and it's not like he can't use you. We have many great saints, particularly some of the, the, the great priests of the church, who couldn't get through seminary. They couldn't learn Latin. They, they thought that they were going to amount to nothing. But yet they ended up being some of the great saints of the church, superb examples of holiness, and drew many people to Christ. But Lewis follows up. He has room for people with very little sense, but he wants everyone to use what sense they have. In a similar sort of way to my example of the little girl jumping into her father's arms, abandoning herself totally to him, trusting him in every way, we should also give our intellect to the service of the faith and to growth in knowledge of God to whatever degree that we've been blessed in that way. And actually extending your analogy a little
0: bit further, we've been focusing on the abandonment, like that total abandoning of herself and jumping in and the trust. But your analogy actually, if you think of the learning to swim as the intelligence The whole point of that is so she can become an incredible swimmer. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the same thing. We're meant to abandon ourselves, give ourselves to God, but he's not going to leave us there. The point of that is so we grow, we gain intelligence, more maturity, and we develop the ability to
1: go out on our own. Jump into the pool so we can learn to swim. Exactly. And Lewis has this wonderful line. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. Oh, thank goodness. So there's still hope for you and I. (laughs) Hopefully. And that's also one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast. Forces us to intellectually engage with a mind like Lewis. (laughs) And
0: out of the two of us, I am definitely the bigger slacker. David puts probably, (laughs) I'd have to imagine, five hours in for every 30-minute podcast. (laughs) And I think I have to prep maybe an hour hour and a half at most for a podcast maybe you're just better at this than i am that's not true at all you (laughs) you do all the editing so for all the listeners if you're praying or giving thanks for the podcast it all goes to david cheers cheers (laughs) i just provide the colored commentary as one person pointed out to me (laughs) that was how they described you Mm -hmm. okay in fairness that was at like the third or fourth episode when that was even more true because i was still finding my footing and figuring out what is our dynamic back and forth Okay. In the beginning, it was just pure colored commentary.
1: <laughs> okay, fine. Let's, let's move on. Uh, Jack makes the point that Christianity is an education in itself. He says, anyone who's honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why one needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. This is why an uneducated believer like Bunyan was able to write a book that has astonished the whole world. The Bunyan that he mentions here is John Bunyan. He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read it? No, but I've heard of it. I've skimmed it. I've never really dug into it. I've read sections of it. And this idea of Christianity being an education in itself, it put me in mind of a story from Peter Crafft, the Boston College professor. He's a philosophy professor. What he says that he does each year is he divides his class roughly into believers and non-believers, and then gets them to take the opposite view in a debate. So the believers have to argue for atheism, and the non-believers have to argue for theism. That sounds brilliant. He said that the same thing happens every year. The unbelievers present a very weak case, but the believers arguing for atheism, they give a knock-down, drag-em-out argumentation against God. Why is that the case? That surprises me. They talk about it afterwards. And the atheists typically say, Well, you know, how on earth could we have done a good job? It's like you're asking us to argue for the tooth fairy. Ouch. But the Christians and the other believers of faith, they say, Well, actually it's not that. It's because you only see our weakest arguments. We see your strongest ones. And I would say it's because living the Christian life, you have to wrestle with these very deep questions on a very regular basis. When you're struggling with life when, some, when uh, evil is happening, you've got to wrestle with that problem. Because uh, I believe in a good God, but I'm experiencing this pain and suffering. How do I reconcile the two? That makes a lot of sense now, actually. Because I was struggling with
0: Christianity, was wrestling with atheism, I, I know all of the key points, mm-hmm. and I've worked through them in my head. But before I did that, yeah, if I was an atheist, and you asked me then to defend Christianity, I would never be able to. Because in fact, I hadn't actually truly wrestled with it yet.
1: Okay, we spent way too long on, uh, on prudence. So I think it'd be prudent to move on and talk about temperance. Well played. Lewis
0: points out the meaning of temperance has shifted in recent years. Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures. And it meant not abstaining, but going to the right length and no further. And it does seem like temperance, people tend to believe it's
1: around drinking. Well, it's because of the temperance movement.
0: Yes. And it's so much just about any sort of pleasure that can go so too far Mm -hmm. but not
1: specifically to do with drink yes and lewis points out that it's islam not christianity that's the teetotal religion isn't mormonism pretty close to that too Mm -hmm. i'm reminded of a quotation by hilaire belloc he said wherever the catholic sun does shine there's always laughter and good red wine at least i've always found it so benedicamus domino
0: that's cool (laughs)
1: I like that. Well, also, there was Chesterton when he said that within Catholicism, there was room for the pint, the pipe, and the cross. Another Chesterton quote.
0: We really could do Chesterton quotes (laughs) at the beginning of this. But he points out there's nothing wrong with beer, money, and sex. Just debauchery or drunkenness, greed, and unchastity. That's a good way of looking at it. Money's not bad. Greed is bad. Alcohol's not bad. Drunkenness is bad. Sex isn't bad. Sex out of marriage is bad. Sounds like those people need temperance. This all fits perfectly with the next point. Temperance does not mean the thing is bad in and of itself.
1: Not at all. And Lewis underscores this point and I think is lost to much of the world and even to some forms of Christianity. He says that an individual Christian may see fit to go up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or cinema, but the moment he starts saying these things are bad in themselves and looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he's taking a wrong turning.
0: Yeah, every one of those things sounds pretty incredible.
1: I mean, I, I, f- I focused in, as I was reading that, on the meat. You did. Because I'm, like cur- a... I'm currently in the nativity fast. The, hmm. In the Byzantine Catholic Church, we start Advent earlier, and it's a much more penitential season. So we typically give up meat, give up dairy. well, Completely. Uh, Not completely. The basic way of doing it is to give them up on Wednesdays and Fridays. Okay. But you talk to your spiritual father and who knows, maybe he will encourage you to take on a slightly more stringent fast to grow in virtue. And you also mentioned sex as well. I mean, I think the world in general thinks... Yeah, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. The world thinks Christianity in this area is just insane. I have had people just with their minds blown The idea that somebody could be chased that there could be somebody in their 20s or, you know, God forbid, even in their 30s, who is still a virgin. How how can that be? Even when I talk about it with individuals,
0: I don't even try to talk about it from a Christian perspective anymore because you just get laughed at. Ah, that's just unfeasible. What I found success with is just talking about it from a purely rational, reasonable perspective, because As we've talked about, Christian morality, which one of them here is chastity, are all about ways the machine should run properly. So if you have that mindset, you should be able to think without bringing in Christianity why a a teaching is a good teaching. And so I I heard this analogy, sleeping with someone is like, imagine you've got two pieces of paper and you glue them and you stick them together, you let it dry, and you try to rip it apart. There's a, a connection, a bond that happens that it's never a clean rip. No. And when I most people, not everyone, and there's probably some listeners who disagree with me with this, but many people actually say, yeah, you know, I get that. It's a deeply intimate, emotional connection, and it is never a clean split. And I found that, taking that approach, I have other things I talk about I won't go into here, but that approach is the way that I have to, because this just seems so foreign to
1: people. Mm -hmm. And that brings us back to this idea of being like little children or the the faith side. Uh, You also have reason. And the two should be in harmony. And I actually think generally this entire chapter on this idea of virtue, this can be a very good way of speaking to a world that's lost faith. They're slowly losing a concept of virtue. But I think most people can be shown that virtue is something that we should be attaining. It is something that we should be aiming for. It's hard to argue against that. Mm -hmm. So temperance isn't restricted just to drink. Jack makes the point that you can be intemperate about a lot of things. This is a great point, by the way. Yeah, he talks about people can be intemperate about their love of clothes or love of the card game bridge or your dog. Intemperance with regards to alcohol, its effects are just much more obvious. And its effect on your life, the negative externalities, these are much more obvious. You can see somebody's life fall apart very quickly as they descend into alcoholism. Whereas it's not so obvious if you're intemperate about these other things. Although I think Lewis would argue it can be no less deadly. And one particular area I was thinking about more modern examples that we might give. How about Netflix binging?
0: I, funny you say that. I was way intemperate here. I had to just text my sister, who I share an account with, two weeks Changed ago. Change the password. I did. I said change it. Because I was, in, I was incredibly intemperate with that. And so, and it's an not example. bad in and of
1: itself. No, it's not. I just couldn't handle it. Entertainment can be good. And even you know, watching three hours worth of Netflix on a Sunday afternoon is actually could be a very good way to rest and relax and spend time with loved ones. But it can also reveal some intemperance. It did to me. What I like about this point, and it's a good chance to always
0: make this plug again, is David and I are talking about these issues. And for example, we just talked and went on a bit of a tangent with Chastity, especially for people who know me, my friends, it, it can come across as condescending, or we're saying that we're living this right way. Even as I share this and and I strive to live up to obviously the chastity rule, I fail in so many other ways. So I never share personally, and I think David would agree, we never are saying these things trying to take a moral high ground, or we're living this great life. I am incredibly intemperate in other ways. Probably the most obvious one is just work. I've raised that up way too high. That's probably unhealthy for a spiritual life for how much I put on that. And so this is a very important reminder that as we share these things, neither David and I think we're these great temperate human beings. We're working on these different areas. I have a a long ways to go.
1: And in preparing this chapter, I'm due for a confession. I try and get that once a month. This is the main subject I'm going to confession for. It's regards to temperance in different areas of my life. And while we're talking about temperance, I suppose now is a good time to talk about why we drink on the show. Because we start every show with beers and cheers. I just thought it was because we like alcohol a lot. <laughs> and I have to edit this later. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we drink for a couple of reasons. And I'm totally stealing this from the Catholic Man Show, because they do that every time. Although they tend to stay in Scotches.
0: Oh, we should totally do that. I'm a huge <laughs> Scotch fan. How is this just being brought up? I have some
1: LaFroy in the kitchen. Oh, uh, okay. Some account 12 would be great. I went shopping for Lagavulin yesterday. Anyway, we're getting off the point. <laughs> Why do we drink? Firstly, God made the things of this world good. If you don't believe me, look in Genesis. He declares it again and again that it's good. He made good things for our enjoyment, and we give glory to him when we enjoy them. As long as we enjoy them with moderation, with temperance, in the correct proportion and to the right degree. Remember a couple of episodes ago when we talked about sin isn't really a thing. It's either a privation or seeking of something in a wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong degree. Yeah. It's very easy to talk about moderation, but hopefully on this show, we're modeling it. Imitating C.S. Lewis, who would meet at the pub and share a beer and discuss the meaning of life, the universe, and everything with his friends. Which is practically what we're doing, right? Exactly. Cheers. We're a little mini Lewis's. <laughs> <laughs> now, we do have to mention something else, though. If someone has an addiction, then the most temperate thing for them might be to avoid alcohol altogether. And that's what the practice of virtue for that person is going to look like.
0: And going a little bit further than that, Sometimes even if you can handle it and you're around people that it could be a bad influence on, you're called to be temperate there also. Uh, well, I would say that's particularly
1: exercising prudence. Yes. Wrong choice of words. Yes. You are, you are being prudent given who your company is. Yes. And I'd actually also like to add a plug for the book which one of my friends just wrote, Scott Wieman. He's, uh, he's written a book on the 12-step program and the sacraments. So there'll be a link in the show notes. Scott had struggled with addictions himself. So, uh, it's a great read. I just finished it. It
0: is. It's an incredible book. I think it's time to go to the third virtue. We're only at the third virtue. We got another one after this. Uh, The next two are, are quite a bit shorter. Good. So, the third one is justice. And like the previous one, temperance, justice, the meaning of it has shifted a little bit. Jack says it is the old name for everything we should now call fairness, it includes honesty, give and take truthfulness, keeping promises, and all that side of life.
1: Yeah, I think I would describe it as doing right by somebody or giving them their due. Yes, but
0: we have to be careful. As he points out in The Great Divorce, a whole chapter on a person who is very much on giving them their due, he struggles because everyone he believes everyone has coming what they're due. And so he gets to this place where he can... I guess, call it, say yes to heaven. And he meets a person who lived life worse than him. But at the end of that life, that person surrendered and gave his life to God. So he entered into heaven. And this person's like, how come you're there? And I'm not. It's I'm, not fair. It's not fair. Fair was a big thing. So we have to be careful. It's, it's a virtue. But at the same time, again, if it's, taken, if it's not temperate,
1: taken too to an extreme, it could be dangerous. And then that takes us on to fortitude. Here's what Lewis says. Fortitude includes both kinds of courage, the kind that faces danger, as well as the kind that sticks it under pain. Guts is perhaps the nearest modern English. Or grit. Yeah, grit. You'll notice, of course, that you cannot practice any of the other virtues long without bringing this one into play. If you don't have fortitude, good luck holding strong in everything else. There's an album by one of my favorite contemporary Christian bands called Casting Crowns, and they have an album and a song called The Altar and the Door. And I listen to the lead singer explain the song. He says, when I'm at the altar, you know, he says, when, when I'm in church and we're singing and we're hearing the message, he says, light is light. Darkness is darkness. Sin stinks in my nostrils. I don't want anything to do with it. But he says, then I get up and I start walking towards the door. And it's when I start walking towards the door that black and white, they turn to gray. And all of those small accommodations, all that negotiation with sin and temptation begins. Now that Jack's explained the meaning of the different virtues, he makes a very important distinction between individual virtuous acts and virtuous character. And he gives the analogy of a tennis player. He says that a good tennis player is one who can always consistently make a good shot. He's trained his eyes and his muscles and his nerves so that he can make the right shot again and again and again. He says it's the same with somebody who pursues virtue. He pursues virtuous actions such that it forms his character so that he becomes virtuous. He says the distinction is really important because if we only think about virtuous acts rather than virtue, character, he says we arrive at three incorrect conclusions. The first one is that if we think that way, then the how and the why don't matter. How or why you did it. Whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerily, through fear of public opinion or for its own sake. Jack says that it actually does matter. He says, the truth is that the right actions done for the wrong reasons do not help build the internal quality or character called virtue. And it is that quality or character that really matters. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I agree that if you do something for the wrong reasons, it doesn't really strengthen that virtuous character. But it is a place to start. I hear this mentioned a lot with regards to chastity. Begin by acting as though you are chaste, start faking it, and you'll eventually make it. And Lewis is actually going to have a similar idea, I think, in book four, where he talks about us becoming like Jesus. We start trying to act as though we are truly a son of God. And over time, that will actually become true. I think it's in the chapter, Let's Pretend. I think the difference between what he's describing here and what he talks about later is still intent. Yeah. It's the difference between I don't feel chaste, but I'm going to act chastely because I want to grow in chastity. That's true. Versus society tells me I have to do this good thing, I'm therefore going to do it, but I don't want to do it. And I'm going to do the act, but my will is very much against this.
0: I'm going to do this because I don't want to go to hell. Mm -hmm. That's not a very good reason to avoid
1: hell. You should have a pretty strong desire for heaven and the beauty of
0: that. That should be the reason. But it
1: is a starting place. Yeah. Because if this is the right way to run the human machine, you should start seeing some benefits from that. And you then start recognizing the truth, the goodness, and the beauty there. And therefore, you actually want to pursue this thing for its own sake. So what's the second wrong idea that you can get? Well, you can start to believe that God cares more about the rules. And I like this
0: one because that is an immense danger that I see happen, where people are doing something because they think that God simply wants obedience to a set of rules. Mm -hmm. Obedience is important, but it's a means to an end. The end is God wants a particular sort of people, as Lewis points out. He wants people that want him. He wants people that want to love him. He wants people that want to, as the Catholic faith says, heaven is spend eternity in communion
1: with God. He wants people that want that. A parent has lots of rules for their children. They don't set those rules just for fun. It's because they want that child to grow up to become all that they can be and to be a person of virtue. Yes,
0: another great way of describing it. In the third wrong idea, Lewis points out that if we reduce virtue to a virtuous act, we might conclude that virtue is only for this world and not for heaven. He says, Now it is quite true that there will probably be no occasion for just or courageous acts in the next world, but there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we can become only as a result of doing such acts here. If people have not got at least the beginnings of those qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven, quote unquote, for them. And that fits well with what Lewis points out, that we need to think on that immortal scale. Mm -hmm. God wants a particular person, someone who desires him, someone whose heart is in the right place. And sometimes you might not actually do the right act, but your heart is striving to be that person that desires God Ahead of everything else.
1: I don't think we can end better than that. That was superb. As usual, the outline will be in the show notes. I'm also going to include a bunch of different links to some other podcasts. The Catholic Man Show, they've got quite a few on some of the different virtues, if you want to dig into that. And I'll also include a link to an episode of a podcast by Leah Darrow. She gets Sarah Swafford on, and they talk about emotional virtue. As always, please like, share, and subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean. You can contact us on the website, The Restless Pilgrim. Is that right?
0: Yep.net. Just making sure. TheRestlessPilgrim.net. <laughs> and you can tweet us at Pints with Jack.
1: And join us next week when we're going to be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.